Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, March 27th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 52. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and more. Polycultured is looking forward to sharing our farm offerings with you, so if you're interested in our work, you can visit our site at www.polycultured.com. I have been deeply fascinated with mycorrhiza since when I first learned about mushrooms and how fungi can help save the planet. Mycorrhiza describes the mutual symbiotic relationship between fungi and plants. Mycorrhiza comes from the Greek word mykis for fungus and rhiza meaning root, or in other words, mycorrhiza, the relationship and actions between the fungus and the plant's root system or rhizosphere. Mycorrhizae are particularly important when we talk about soil biology, soil chemistry, and how plants acquire nutrition and protect themselves from disease. This relationship between fungi and plants is often mutualistic, but can in some instances be parasitic as well. The basics of the relationship is that the plant makes organic molecules like sugars via photosynthesis and moves them to the roots. And in return, the fungus supplies the plant with water and minerals from the soil. There's also evidence that plants lacking roots can also hold mycorrhiza-like relationships with fungi, especially by looking at fossil evidence of early land plants up to 460 million years ago. This means that fungi and plants have been working together since the very beginning, and it's likely that fungi helped plants to begin to adapt to land for the first time. The oldest mycorrhiza form, the arbuscular mycorrhiza, have remained structurally consistent throughout this long time and have been known to evolve convergently in multiple occasions, meaning sometimes they evolved separately but created or kept the same features. Some arbuscular mycorrhizae have been known to send chemical signals warning of attack from predator organisms like insects or disease. Most plant species have some form of mycorrhizal associations, but two families that we commonly grow as foods, the Brassica family of cruciferous vegetables and the amaranth family of grains, are not able to form these associations. This process begins when the fungus attaches to the host plant's root tissues, and this happens a few different ways. The first mycorrhizal association is known as endomycorrhizal, or when the hyphae, the long branching vegetative growth of the fungal mycelium, penetrate the individual root cells they wish to target. This is otherwise known as intracellular penetration, where the hyphae penetrate the cell wall and the cell membrane. The other mycorrhizal relationship is performed outside of the actual plant cells in a matrix between the plant cells, where the hyphae can touch it to exchange messages and nutrients, which is known as ectomycorrhizal. Lastly, there's a further classification of ectendomycorrhizal and a special category of monotropoid mycorrhizas. The common denominator of these mycorrhizal relationships is a form of mutualism. Both the plants and the fungi are described as mycorrhizal because both benefit and for some, they're entirely interdependent upon one another for survival, though they are separate species. Mutualism may not even be adequate enough to describe the complex relationship between them, and some researchers believe that mycorrhizae may 
ration nutrients based on the environment and communication with other plants and mycorrhizae networks. So the plant leaves generate carbohydrates in in the leaves and move them down into the root tissues where they're picked up by the fungi. And in return, the plant gains the benefits of the mycelium's higher capacity for absorption. So plant roots without the help of mycelium aren't able to take up certain nutrients, especially in soils with high clay content or a strongly basic pH. And they also aren't able to break down organic matter, which the fungi can provide thereby mobilizing the decaying matter's nutrients to the plant. So fungi are also adept at secreting certain organic acids that can dissolve or chelate ions and release them from minerals via ion exchange. So mycorrhizae are particularly helpful to plants growing in poor or disturbed soils. Let's start by talking about ectomycorrhizal or ECM. There are thousands of ectomycorrhizal fungi species. Conservative estimates say that around 8,000, but others suspect that it's far greater, more like 20,000 to 25,000 species. And this relationship forms between the roots of around 10% of plants. So especially the woody plants, oaks, pines, roses, birch, eucalyptus, dipterocarp, orchids, and sometimes other herbaceous perennials and fungi belonging to the Basidiomycota, Ascomycota, and Zygomycota. And these are mushrooms like puffballs, porcinis, chanterelles, stinkhorns, bracket fungus, and other polypores, um, bolets, jelly fungus, amanitas, morels, truffles, dead man's fingers, and others. So interestingly, ectomycorrhizae are common in the temperate forests of the Northern Hemisphere, though we do have several tropical and subtropical examples and wide distribution across continents, uh, which suggests that this fungus has ancient roots and this this relationship between fungus and plants is longstanding. Ectomycorrhizal fungi may be specific to one particular kind of plant, but the vast majority show low levels of specificity, such as Amanita. This makes them generalists, so they can form relationships with many different kinds of plants. And there may be a few reasons for this, one maybe being that the plant seedlings are more likely to be able to form mycorrhizas in a wide variety of habitats, and so that plants can make use of different fungi that have different nutrient gathering abilities for them. And conversely, a tree may have several different ectomycorrhizal relationships at the same time. So in the earliest stages of communication, complex molecular changes take place even before the fungus and the plant make physical contact. So certain genes show changes in expression for both the fungi and the plant host, and that releases certain metabolites and triggers the growth of the hyphae towards the root. So the hyphae knows to go towards that root. And the soil microbiology may provide other important information for both parties as the ectomycorrhizal relationship is forming. Ectomycorrhizae developed a system of nutrient exchange without having to actually enter the plant cells. So there are three main components to this. They first have a hyphal sheath or mantle, which is the part of the fungus that's going to physically cover the root tip. And then the fungus creates what is called a hartig net of hyphae. So this is where the fungal hyphae actually squeezes in between the tiny cortical cells of the root 
thereby surrounding the plant cells within the root cortex, and it creates this net-like pattern. And thirdly, the ectomycorrhizal extramatricle mycelium forms a network outside the root and within the surrounding soil and leaves. So this functions as a transport structure for the mycorrhizal relationship, where they can reach out to other networks and form common mycorrhizal networks. And so this allows for the sharing of nutrients actually from one tree to another via the ectomycorrhizal network of several species. So not, not all plants are compatible with these fungi networks, so only certain plants are able to benefit from this, but this is an example of sort of one tree using another tree's resources to also siphon off some things that it needs. And in ectomycorrhizal relationships, nutrient transfers happen across this fungus-plant interface through the cell walls and membranes of both sides through the intracellular interface. And that depth of penetration differs between ectomycorrhizal species, some being confined to the epidermis while others enter the more deep areas of the roots endodermis. And so each species has a slightly different way of approaching the construction of the Hartig net. Ectomycorrhizal fungi does not penetrate plant cells, except in nature, there are no hard and fast rules. So sometimes an ectomycorrhizal fungi behaves the same by creating the hyphal sheath to surround the roots of the plant, except it actually does penetrate the plant cells. And this is the reason for the term ectendomycorrhizal. So this is just a reminder that, you know, nature is not going to fit into our neat little categorization boxes. And we call ectendomycorrhizae arbutoid mycorrhizae because it involves plants of the Ericaceae subfamily arbutoidae, such as the Mediterranean strawberry tree. Now, arbutoid mycorrhizae are more abundant in drier climates, in pastures, and deciduous forests with high turnover of organic material and places where phosphorus is limited. And it's usually the only mycorrhiza in crop plants, pastures, and fruit trees. So scientists have been unsuccessful at growing arbutoid mycorrhiza fungi in a controlled setting on pure culture. So all of our scientific knowledge of this fungi is based on fungal structures and functions that are associated with the host's roots. So we basically have to study the plant in order to understand what's going on with this fungi and how it's interacting with it. We are just scratching the surface of understanding how nutrients are moving between different plants in the fungal network and how this can affect the succession of species in an ecosystem, and even how fungi can create lures to feed on specific organisms to provide specific nutrients to trees. So research on ectomycorrhizal relationships is becoming more important as we learn how to deal with the changing climate and how we mitigate issues within forestry and agriculture and ecosystem restoration and management. So ultimately the hyphal network's job is to help the plant survive adverse conditions. And in return, the fungi is rewarded with access to sugars from the plant. So ectomycorrhizal fungi reproduce sexually and they produce fruiting bodies, what we commonly term as mushrooms. And so ectomycorrhizal fungi rely upon mammals for the dispersal of their spores, either through physically destroying the mushroom when an animal's eating it, or afterwards when the animal ingests it and then eventually excretes the spores somewhere else. So many species are only able to complete their life cycle and create fruiting bodies after they've participated 
in an ectomycorrhizal relationship. And so plants need two particular things from fungi in that their hyphae can travel much further than the plant's roots can physically, and their ability to extract larger amounts of nitrogen from other layers in the soil where they exist in greater abundance. So the ectomycorrhizal fungi receive approximately 15% of the host's, uh, the plant's food, and in return, they provide up to 86% of the plant's nitrogen needs. So when there's too much nitrogen present, for example, from human use of fertilizer, plants may need to stop using the fungal network, which causes problems for the fungi's reproduction and then can ultimately like change the type of fungus that's present in that particular soil. So this is one example of how conventional agriculture is destroying these ancient and intricate relationships between plants and fungi and how that results in an undesirable outcome for ecological life. So tillage and fungicides also present huge problems for ectomycorrhizal fungi, uh, the surrounding species, and of course just the overall habitat. In addition to nutrient transport, the fungi provide other advantages such as protection. So the hyphal sheath that covers the root tips is a physical barrier between the plant and pathogens or predators. And the fungi even produce secondary metabolites as biochemical defenses for the plants and for the mycorrhizal root, including shielding them from heavy metals, radionuclides, salts, and other organic pollutants like persistent organic pollutants or POPs. Um, and, and ectomycorrhizals are also important players in restoration projects that aim to reestablish native plant species that are disrupted from human intervention or major natural disasters and weather events. So if the soil has gone through a major disturbance, it's important to introduce ectomycorrhizal fungi to establish vegetation. And additionally, they are adept at dealing with heavy metals, and many species are able to survive in contaminated soil while deploying detoxification mechanisms to reduce the heavy metal concentration in their cells or by binding to the heavy metals, which immobilizes them or converting them into chemically inactive forms. And this is true for other types of pollution as well. So the extramatrical mycelium also develops uh, these specialized runner hyphae. Uh, this is on the outside that extend far enough from the host roots to increase water access. So it's fascinating that non-native plants often need mycorrhizal relationships to thrive, and sometimes ectomycorrhizal fungi must be introduced to a landscape to actually ensure the success of that plant. So, for example, in fact, eucalyptus plantations required inoculation by ectomycorrhizal fungi from their native landscape in order for them to naturalize elsewhere um, because they became very useful in uh, the paper production uh, industry. And so this can also happen naturally without human intervention as an ecosystem is transforming through succession. There is well-documented competition among ectomycorrhizal fungi, and this is affected by various aspects of the soil environment including the presence of some kinds of soil bacteria which stimulate or inhibit certain kinds of ectomycorrhizal formations. And plants can also compete with one another by attacking the fungal networks of competing plants by inhi inhibiting fungal growth. And so that has noticeable effects on the nutrient uptake 
and the success of certain native trees. Uh, so now let's switch gears and talk about endomycorrhiza. So endomycorrhiza are further classified into arbuscular, ericoid, arbutoid, which you already learned about a bit, orchid, and monotropoid mycorrhizas. So arbuscular mycorrhizas have hyphae that actually penetrate into those plant cells, producing either balloon-like structures called vesicles or branching structures called arbuscles or hyphal coils to facilitate the nutrient exchange. There's several different design formations. And it's important to note that the hyphae do not enter the interior of the cell, but the cell membrane and the small branching arbuscles that increase the contact surface area between the hyphae and the cell cytoplasm. So arbuscular mycorrhizas are by far the most common. They're found in 80 to 85% of all plant species. And this makes sense because fossil evidence leads us to believe that this symbiotic relationship began 400 to 460 million years ago during the adaptation of vascular plants to land from the sea. And so there are two main hypotheses as to why this happened. And the first is that the symbiosis evolved out of a parasitic interaction that developed into mutualism. And the second is that the mycorrhizal fungi developed out of a saprobic fungi that you know eat decaying matter and that eventually it became symbiotic over time. So this method of exchange and communication appears to have formed before other kinds of fungal plant symbiosis. So according to fossil records, that's what's telling us this, uh, making these type of fungi probably the kind that, you know, helped move plants from the sea to life on land, while ectomycorrhizae may have arisen much later down the line in evolution and possibly to help newer species develop or as the earth was transformed, you know, nutritionally deficient habitats into places where uh, plants could live and cover the earth. The hyphae of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi produce the glycoprotein glomalin, which is a major store of soil carbon in the soil. So this means that the fungi rely on the plant's carbon for nutrition, and around 25% of the carbon that is transferred is stored in the extra radical hyphae. So this is just one of the major ways that plants store carbon below the ground is through this relationship with mycorrhiza. And conversely, the carbon supply is how the fungi are able to transfer phosphorus from fungi to plant. So this benefits the plants because it greatly increases the uptake of nutrients due to the surface area being covered by those mycorrhizal fungi and the modified roots and increased, increased nutrient storage capabilities as well. So mycorrhizae are more efficient at taking up phosphorus at a rate six times greater than what the root hairs alone could accomplish. And so this isn't a perfect system, and some mycorrhizae relationships are strong or poor symbionts, providing little phosphorus but taking large amounts of carbon. So it's not, you know, like a 50-50 exchange always exactly. And inoculating soil with arbuscular mycorrhizas can help remediate land by helping host plants establish themselves and to improve soil health, especially plant growth and phosphorus uptake, 
as well as soil nitrogen content, higher organic matter content, better water infiltration and soil aeration, and a reduction in heavy metal content. The next endomycorrhizal subtype is ericoid mycorrhiza, which are fungi that have a mutualistic relationship with the plant family ericaceae, such as cranberry, blueberry, huckleberry, rhododendron, and other shrubs and trees that are evergreen and growing in coniferous forests, uh, bogs, and also shrublands. So they form in coils of hyphae with their epidermal cells and individual hyphae extending into the soil. They also penetrate the cell wall without entering the plasma membranes of the plant cells and only do so for a few weeks before beginning to degrade. The ericoid mycorrhizal fungi are also known for their ability to break down complex organic molecules, which help increase nutrient uptake in challenging habitats. Their symbiosis is an important adaptation to acidic and nutrient-poor soils, which ericaceae plants are known for growing in. So ericoid mycorrhiza have been around for at least 140 million years, and they're geographically dispersed on all continents except Antarctica. Orchid mycorrhiza is the symbiosis between the plant family Orchidaceae and many types of fungi. The first thing to note here is that all orchids are mycoheterotrophic at some stage during their life cycle, which means that the plant gets all or part of its nutrition from parasitism on fungi instead of photosynthesis. So particularly orchid mycorrhizae are essential for orchid germination. So orchid seeds have no energy reserves and they have to obtain carbon from fungi directly. So when an orchid seed germinates, it forms an intermediate structure called a protocorm, which does not have leaves. And the fungal hyphae enter the orchid in its earliest stages, producing intracellular hyphal coils called pelotons in the embryos of the developing seedlings and the roots of adult plants. And the peloton formation in root cortical cells is the defining structure of the orchid mycorrhizae. And the hyphae actually penetrate into the root cells for nutrient exchange. And so this relationship is maintained throughout the lifetime of the orchid, and it supplies them with nutrients and sugar and minerals. And so many species of orchids lack chlorophyll. So they actually need to maintain this relationship their whole lives in order to survive. And so most of the orchid mycorrhizae have a unique and specialized nutrient transfer system that's built just for the orchid family. Uh, So for example, we've already explained that in our buscular mycorrhizal interactions, the plant supplies the fungi with carbon and the fungi supplies the plant with phosphorus or nitrogen. But with orchid mycorrhizal nutrient transfers, there is a bi-directional flow of these nutrients. And the beloved vanilla bean is an orchid that actually relies on orchid mycorrhiza to survive and thrive. The special category or subcategory, I should say, of monotropoid mycorrhiza is a specific mycorrhiza that occurs in the subfamily monotropoidae of the Ericaceae family and other genera in the Orchidaceae families. So these plants are categorized by deriving their carbon from the fungus partner. And so in this way, it's considered, or one exception to the mutualism rule. So it's considered a non-mutualistic or parasitic type of mycorrhizal symbiosis. 
So I hope that you found the different types of mycorrhizal relationships as fascinating as I have. I think it's become obvious that these interrelationships are extremely important to the cultivated and managed areas of your space. And they're also clearly essential for the outer zones and wild areas as well. So I wanted to talk about methods within gardening and farming that you can have a positive relationship with the mycorrhizal fungi and plant species and benefit from this, you know, as well as as the plants and, and fungi benefiting from it. So just like the fungi and plant connect and form these mutualistic bonds, I believe that we also need to live in that spirit of mutualism with them. So the most important aspect of encouraging mycorrhizal networks is treating the soil like an underground civilization. So tearing up the network that's been built under the ground and the communities that are living there will always be antithetical to the outcomes of harvest and ecological stability. So the first way to encourage the network is to not destroy it. So in short, just don't till your land. Tillage breaks up the mycelial network that we've been talking about in this episode. And so if your trees are attaching themselves to 15 or more species of fungi to receive essential nutrients, the last thing that you want to do is cut them off every year when you go through and till the land that's around them. And when mycelial networks are broken, they have to find new pathways so they don't reconnect. And that means they have to start all over. And so this is a net negative for you and the tree. So you also miss out on the edible mushrooms that would be provided by the fungi and water isn't able to be held in the ground as well without the mycelium there. And so the effect of that is that the fruit harvest that you have is hindered too. You also want to encourage the maximum diversity above ground as possible. So the more diversity you can present above ground, the more complex interrelationships will form below ground. Even though mycorrhizal relationships can be specific, Remember that most are actually generalists, so they're going to contribute to the relationships between many different species like plants and animals and fungi. So the more you build your soil, the better the network between these different players will be, and that will provide nutrients and protection. It will balance the pH of your soil. It'll increase the water movement. It'll sequester carbon. It'll aerate the soil and do more than that. So, and speaking of animals, like whenever possible, you obviously want to use grazing animals to help facilitate this process. The animals need to be moved, whether that's through movable fencing or multi-paddock systems, and the land has to be kept away from animals during a certain recovery period. So this rotational grazing encourages better root systems of the plants, and the animals are going to drop beneficial manure and urine, and that's literal nutrients, and the fungi can go and break that down and transport it right to the plants. So the types of animals that you keep on your land, they have to be appropriate for the climate and the terrain. You want them to exert minimal damage on the soil surface while still providing that defoliation and the manure. So this proper balance will increase mycorrhizal relationships and it'll make your farm more productive. And a part of this talk on grazing is just that the soil always needs to be covered with vegetation. You know, another reason why tilling and also overgrazing is so bad for the soil is that it leaves it barren. And when it's barren, it's exposed. And that increases the temperature of the soil, which kills the microbial and the mycelial life that's there. So you don't want to overgraze and you don't want to leave the soil uncovered. You always want to try and plant something in barren patches and to get the life cycle going again under the soil. 
you know, you want to help increase those mycorrhizal relationships. And the longer the growing season, the more time that these relationships will have to form. So, you know, you can greenhouse or you can use other equipment to extend your growing season to encourage more of these mycelial networks to form. And avoiding fertilizer, especially that has phosphorus in it, uh, can be as damaging as tilling the land. So remember that we discussed how phosphorus is generally unavailable and plants have evolved alongside fungi for the purpose of the nutrient exchange of phosphorus. So too much phosphorus is a good way to deplete those mycorrhizal networks on your land, and this can only damage your flora in the long term. So on a soil test, you want to shoot for around 50 to 100 parts per million for phosphorus, even though 200 parts per million is considered like what you want to have production for crop growth. So it will discourage mycorrhizal networks to form bonds at the height of 200 parts per million. So you really actually want less. And you also want to avoid pesticides and fungicides and herbicides on your land. These are also, you know, harming those mycorrhizal networks and they're disrupting the pathways that move those nutrients. So if you have these chemicals coming on your land, even from outside your property, such as upstream, you can design these special mycelial mats that act as filters and that can keep your land safer from these outside contaminants that are going to be brought into your space from the elements. And lastly, I love mulch. Wood chips are very well loved by fungi and they also soak in water very nicely. So I think they're great on the top layer of your garden areas. So they shouldn't be mixed in the soil. You want to wipe them away to the side and then do any planting in that area. And then you want to push them back on top or around a seedling that you've planted. And eventually, you know, you want vegetation to just be covering all of this. But in the spots that are barren, wood chips are the right strategy. They really protect soil moisture and they keep the soil temperatures cool. So that's two ways to ensure that the mycorrhizal networks underneath are continuing to do their thing and get more connected. And finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about inoculation. So if you want to inoculate your land with these mycorrhizal fungi, if you're planning on planting certain kinds of plants, it can be helpful to at least have an idea of what you're looking for. So you can start with ectomycorrhizal fungi. You want to inoculate with these if you're interested in arboriculture or the study of trees, if you are interested in reforestation, or perhaps you want to grow mushrooms, like you want to do mushroom fruiting body production um, for landscaping or leisure settings, or if you're interested in phytostabilization to reduce the mobility of heavy metals in the soil. This is really where the ectomycorrhizal species of fungi are going to excel. So phytostabilization refers to decontaminating the soil through using trees or plants to actually absorb and break down those pollutants into less uh, harmful forms. And because ectomycorrhizal fungi are essential to the success of the forest, you want them to be a part of your remediation plan, or if you have plans to uh, facilitate, you know, a wild space, a uh, space that you're not going to do any cultivation on, uh, you want to work with ectomycorrhizal fungi species, and you can gather them a few different ways as well. And generally, endomycorrhizal fungi, on the other hand, 
are going to be more useful for bioremediation. So that sounds kind of like phytostabilization, but it's slightly different. So bioremediation refers to using naturally occurring or introduced microorganisms, like uh, the actual microbes in the soil, to they would do the consuming and breaking down of the pollutants. So you may need to get multiple forms of inoculation involved, like compost tea or a properly made living soil compost to help you get the endomycorrhizal fungi to be attracted to this area. And they're also generally going to be better for your crops and berries and flower production. So in particular, our, our buscular mycorrhiza are going to help your plants like your fruit trees and vegetable gardens and grain fodder production for livestock and other types of horticulture that you want to do. And ericoid mycorrhizal fungi, which are part of the endomycorrhizal fungi group, are going to be helpful if you're starting with land that's not very good. You know, it's dry and it's like really challenging to grow something in. So ericoid mycorrhizal fungi are a type that really knows how to increase that nutrient uptake and can help transform the land as you encourage, you know, the soil to be built there year after year of working with it. And the orchid mycorrhizal fungi group is, of course, if you want to do any specialized kind of orchid crop production or if you want to be involved in the conservation of these like exotic plants, um, you need to understand orchid mycorrhizal fungi groups. And many orchid species have medicinal or culinary qualities. So you not, you know, just want to, but need to utilize the orchid mycorrhizal fungi because they, they need to work with those plants um, in order for those plants to even uh, be cultivated. So all of this to say that you really do need to do some research about any plant or tree that you're going to pick up at a nursery. You might want to go into nature and you can find some of these inoculants and bring them right to your tree sapling. Or you may want to order specific strains if you're working with a specialized plant that's going to need that fungal network to survive and produce it, you know, what you want it to produce for you. And so understanding that the plants and the fungi are truly interdependent, interwoven, even physically so, you see that they're something that we want to respect and really honor in our gardens and our farms and growing spaces. Thanks for coming along to learn about the beautiful world of mycorrhiza. When you think about how intricate and complex these relationships are and how long they've been in evolution, and then comparing that to like the human trajectory, I just get very awestruck. To me, it's really, it's just simply astounding. If you have a chance, I encourage you to look up some of the images of mycorrhizal networks or mycelial networks in general, and you'll see that down to the micro scale, they resemble us. You know, they resemble brain neurons. They resemble other natural phenomena that you see in trees branching and rivers flowing and zooming out to a macro scale, they really can also look like universes. And so the metaphor of the mycelial network is not lost on me. I really do believe that this is a model for who we are supposed to be and the roles that we're supposed to facilitate during our very short and brief time on earth. And so learning to work with mycorrhizal networks is, like I said before, it's becoming a part of them. It's only through this true immersion and relationship with these forces that we can unlock their true potential. And for too long, commercial industrial global farming that's controlled by mega corporations has been damaging and desecrating these networks and the network that keeps us all fed and keeps us all here. 
So I think that there's going to be an increased resistance to their ways of abuse on the earth and the farm workers themselves. And I think that we're going to rebuild these spiritual relationships with these other beings that we inhabit the earth with. And the science is a great way to understand just how intricate and amazing that these networks are. But you can clearly see that they are also about relationships, you know, they're talking to each other in ways that we still don't quite understand. We can't fully articulate what is going on. And so research will have to continue to form and we'll continue to learn more about the mycorrhizae. But the great thing about it is that we can also go outside and we can just experience it, you know, and the mycorrhiza experiences us as well. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like, subscribe, and comment to let me know what you think of it. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We're bringing you info on backyard food production and sustainable living. If you enjoyed this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com polycultured. This concludes episode 52 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night.